I see seven o'clock on at least one clock. It gives me license to get started. Hope all of you all have had a very profitable reading of Jeremiah so far. As I have. We're in Jeremiah chapter 4 this evening. Be there in your Bibles. In visiting chapters 1 through 3, there are a number of things we tried to emphasize, so let's quickly recap. We're seeing in Jeremiah the message from the Lord, a very plain and consistent message that he had tried to reach his people, tried a number of things, but in spite of all of it, they had not listened to him. And this led to a situation where they didn't even know their own husband, their own Lord, their own father. Very desperate situation. One of the promises of the book of Jeremiah is that they would know him. They would know who God really is. Who is God? He's the God of mercy, who is slow to anger, and who stands ready to forgive But will the people return to him and seek the forgiveness? Well, that's what we visited in chapter 3 this past week. And a a two-part answer to that, most of which was, doesn't look like much hope, but maybe maybe just a glimmer there at the end. But though he's the God of mercy, and he's wanting to extend forgiveness, he's also the God who is just and who always does what's right. And this means punishment for anybody who's... Uh, not going to yield to his will. And then as a third thing, he's the God who keeps covenants. Especially when it, especially um, we see this in terms of messianic prophecies. Always sneaking those in and pointing ahead to those things. So uh, I think you'll find these in our reading tonight as well as we have in our past couple weeks together. God told, God appointed Jeremiah to go, to speak, and to do so without fear, even though he would experience conflict and certainly resistance from the people. His message, in a nutshell, was that God had appointed him over the nations to bring about some changes, to uproot what needed to be pulled up because it was a dead plant a worthless plant or a worthless vine, to tear down because there were a great many things that were erected uh, to the harm of the people. But then that God's purpose would then be to build up what needed to be built again and to, uh, to plant. And some of these things, again, pointing to the Messiah. All of this pointing to God's purpose and God's character. What we had seen in chapter 3 was a question of whether or not they would return. Judah didn't learn, and Judah didn't return, even though she had seen a number of things, especially with Israel, and them being unfaithful, going away into captivity. Your neighbor, somebody knocked on their door. You were looking out the blinds. Knocked on the door. He said, I wonder what that's about, because they look very officious, official. And then they disappear and are never heard from again. Does that make an impression on you? Well, it didn't make an impression on Judah. 
when something like this happened to them uh, or to, to their sister Israel. But what we began to see in chapter 3 was there's mercy with the God of mercy. Uh, somebody put it to me this way last week, and it was one of those moments. I wish I had said that. I said, there's a way back. And that really sums it up. Uh, I think I used a bunch of words to try to say those four words. There's a way back with God. Up until a point, um, maybe that needs to be pointed out as well. As we got to the end of chapter 3, what was revealed was this a hopeful, kind of an optimistic outlook, because there's a talk of return. And this talk of turning introduces our text in chapter 4. So let's see chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2 describe a, a true turning, because there was, a, there was a turning in chapter 3 that was not with the whole heart, verse 10, but a sort of a deceptive turning, a sort of, I need something, and so I'm turning back to you because it's, it's very convenient for me, or I need something. Chapter, uh, Jeremiah 4, verses 1 and 2. If you will return, O Israel, if that's what you have in mind, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And what will he require in this returning? What does the Lord require? If you will, yes, yes, he requires repentance. He requires a new heart, a change, and a turning. Yeah, circumcision of the heart. His, his covenant people who had this covenant of a very specific, with a very specific symbol were just as bad as the nations because the nations were uncircumcised, but they're uncircumcised of heart. And there was some, there, they were still making some, there was still some religious practice that seemed to be serving the Lord. But as Micah would point out in his time as well, this is not what the Lord really wanted if there was no true turn from the heart. What does the Lord require? If you would, if you will put away your detested things from my presence and will not waver, you have to be um, really fully committed to this, he says. And if you will swell, swear as the Lord lives, you can't be using the name of Baal to be saying things. In truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Uh, three very important concepts that we see throughout uh, the prophets especially, but in all of God's revelation to men, these are the things he truly desires, a, true, a truth, justice, and righteousness. If uh, they will do that, uh, blessings. Blessings for them and blessings for the nations. And this, of course, touches on uh, messianic things as well. Yes, he requires that the people turn to him, circumcise their hearts, and wash their hearts from evil, which is what we'll see in verse 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? They're deeply rooted. How long are you willing to continue in that state? It's the same as the message that he had given to the, that Isaiah had given for the Lord. Like, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, seek to do evil, or uh, cease to do evil. Let's try that again. <laughs> Learn to do good. Um, reprove, rebuke, exhort, all of these things. But that's all the talk of turning that we see 
And the conversation then turns to a destruction. And so there's certainly a glimmer of hope and some would turn, but by and large, uh, the Lord knows that it's destruction for them. And what we find in Jeremiah 4 are pictures of destruction. He gives it as wildfire in verse 4. He says, my wrath is going to go forth like fire. And a wildfire is something you can't quench, ask the people in Canada, and you can't outrun. You'll be thousands of miles away and you'll still feel its effects. So wildfire, that's one of the pictures of destruction. When you look in verse 7, it's a lion, and we'll see that again in chapter 5. There's a sword in verse 10. There's a scorching wind or a whirlwind in verses 11, verse 13, or storm clouds, if you want to uh, think of it in that way, as, as verse 13 will say. And these are very destructive storms. Um. There will be horses in verse 13, so military might, but these horses are swifter than eagles. <laughs> Not something I care to face. And then in verse 16, there are besiegers. This is no mere army, okay? This is, these are no mere opportunistic soldiers that will go ransack helpless places. A besieger goes up against your most fortified city, and he doesn't leave until you're overthrown. And that's the picture of destruction that God is trying to do. They're merciless, they're determined, they're tireless, and this is all pointing to a miserable death, and that's all they can expect. So the pictures of destruction are pretty comprehensive in chapter 4. In verse 5, the Lord is going to attempt to sound an alarm. Declare in Judah and, Jer and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet in the land, cry aloud, and say, it's time to seek refuge. And so you think, maybe this alarm will save us, but it won't. Not against besiegers, not against people who are going to overthrow your greatest cities. But what else can you do? Well, it's time to quit standing still and, and, and do something. Verse 6 will say, it's time to seek refuge. For I, behold, I am bringing evil from the north, a great destruction. So God, it's time for God to... Pour out, like he said in chapter 1. This is the boiling pot that's tipped over and a roll, at a rolling boil, and it's just going to overwhelm them like a flood. He's bringing evil from the north. Jeremiah thinks he's getting mixed messages because in verse 10, he says, Ah, oh, Lord God, well, surely you've utterly deceived the people in Jerusalem, saying you will have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. See, I thought I'd been hearing a message of peace. That's what all the other prophets are saying in chapter 6. What are they saying? What do they say about peace? You've read ahead. Peace, peace is coming to you. Jeremiah, through the Lord, there is no peace. He's learning that, but... He's hearing this conflicting message, and he says, the, the sword is touching the throat. I'm, we're already pinned down. <laughs> what, what's the true message here? Is there peace? No, there's no peace. But more on that in chapter 6. And in verse 11, there's a scorching wind that we pointed out. This wind is too strong 
to do any good. A scorching wind from the bare heights in the, direct, in, the, uh, in the wilderness in the direction of the daughter of my people. Not to winnow, not to cleanse, a, a wind too strong for this, much too strong. And it will come at my command. And this is part of his pronouncing his judgments against them. Don't think it's time to thresh your grain when a wind would be helpful. You throw it up in the air and the chaff gets blown away and that's a helpful wind. It's too strong for that. It's not, uh, nothing beneficial at all. Don't hang your clothes out to dry. <laughs> Too strong. How strong? In verse 13, strong enough to bring ruin. Woe to us, for we are ruined. In verse 27, it's enough to cause desolation. Um, for thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation. Yet he says in his mercy, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. And so usually these things where he's revealing his mercy has to do with a remnant. A remnant coming back to the land and physically a remnant would return. But especially... Um, a spiritual remnant, and he's not executing a complete destruction because what happened if the children of Israel are completely destroyed? What falls apart? Plan of salvation through the Messiah. That had to be through David. So he's not executing a complete destruction. Something is spared um, so that God can be faithful to his promises and he keeps his covenants, especially in things that pertain to the Messiah. Now, Jeremiah is deeply, deeply affected by this message. Imagine that uh, day after day, this is the message you have to deliver to the people. And he, this shows his heart of compassion, which is very, very godly. This shows his desire for them to turn. And so he's completely aligned with God's ways. But listen to his well, he says anguish in verse 19. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. Because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. There's disaster on disaster has been foretold or proclaimed. And I'm, I'm looking ahead and I can already see the devastation, the desolation. I'm looking and all the people are wiped out. It's almost as if the whole world has been shaken and destroyed. And he says, I cannot be silent. Something needs to be done about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 Paul was impressed by who God is. Paul was impressed by the fact that anybody who is rebellious against the Lord is destroyed. And he says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And I think there's something very similar going on here with Jeremiah. He says, I know the message of the Lord, and I'm trying to persuade men to try to hear. Um, unfortunately, it's a fruitless endeavor, as you already know. What is the state of the people? How would we assess this? Look at verse 22. It's really pitiful. 
I believe this is Jeremiah doing his own assessment and noticing the, the state of the people. Not necessarily that God's revealing this and Jeremiah almost, it's almost as though Jeremiah feels sorry for them. But I think he's of two minds. I think he'd feel sorry for them if, if he didn't know that they brought this on themselves. That they've been stubborn and they've been rebellious. And so it's not just a matter of... Uh, trouble in knowing who the Lord is. It's a heart problem, a deep, deep-seated heart problem. And yet he still has, seems to have some uh, compassion for this. His assessment is in verse 22, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children, and they have no understanding. They're shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. So... This is definitely worse than just, you might say, ignorance. Ignorance is never an excuse. But this is, this is not a, sort of a, well, an excusable ignorance. It's, it's describing something that is rebellion. More about that as we go on. By the way, uh, it'll be difficult to pause. <laughs> I might try. <laughs> Say what needs to be said, raise a hand, wave like this, and we will uh, we'll hear what you have to say by way of comment. In verses 23 through 28, the desolation, but not a complete uh, destruction. And he, he sees just utter havoc and emptiness. It's like everything has been just wiped clean. And uh, Jerusalem certainly would uh, become desolate. Come down to verse 28, though. Because we see a picture that we began with in chapter 1. This will recall the almond tree. What was the picture of the almond tree intended to convey to Jeremiah? What was the message there? God always does what he says. He is sending his word by Jeremiah, and then he watches over his word to perform it. See if you find that here in verse 28. For this the earth shall mourn, the heavens above be dark. This is a lot like the language of Isaiah. The lights are going out, the stars, the moon, the sun, it's darkness, it's, it's a day of destruction. And why are these things coming about? Middle of verse 28. Because I have spoken, I have purposed, and I will not change my mind, nor will I turn from it. And so, I see that he has spoken, and that is absolutely firm. He has purposed, and so he absolutely intends to do it. And it's unchanging. Is there any chance that he's going to turn back from what he's going to do. Interesting conversation there because chapter 17 will say up to a point, a nation against which I have spoken to bring about disaster, if they turn to me, it's built into my words that I'm willing to relent. But then he says, there's also the, the case that if I speak about a nation that I want to build them up and to plant the message of Jeremiah which is what, absolutely what he intended to do. But then they don't, well, fall in line with his ways. He says he will think better of the good with which I plan to bless it. 
And so, yes, there's a way in which um, his, will is un his will is unchanging because the wicked will be punished. <laughs> but there is a sense in which he is willing to uh, relent because he is the God of mercy. So it's built into his character, it's built into his word, and that's what's being revealed here. Spoken, purposed, unchanging, and I will not turn from it. So he is, he is unyielding in what he intends to do. Well, make some comments there about chapter 4 if you want to, before we go on to chapter 5. Yeah, very good. The idea of God repenting. We go back to God repenting that he had made man. He still held out, even though he planned to destroy the world because Noah preached for 120 years. He couldn't mm -hmm. repent because man didn't repent. Mm -hmm. The time that he was going to destroy the children of Israel and create a new nation. Mm -hmm. What did it take for him to change his mind? Mm -hmm. And I think those are powerful lessons, and here as well, that our prayers are important. And it is important that we pray well, mm -hmm. that we pray according to God's will, and submit ourselves to him, as he's, as he's saying here, that uh, the first few portions there, uh, verses 2 and 3, uh, there is a devotion to God, uh, a declaration that he is God. Uh, and that has to come in our lives, too, that perhaps his will against us because of our sins mm -hmm. uh, can be changed. That's why Christ came. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it required... And interceding on our behalf, otherwise we would have been totally destroyed and, and totally ruined. And a prayer, a, a, um, a fervent prayer, kind of the prayer that Jeremiah is willing to offer on behalf of the people. Certainly a personal prayer saying, I will turn no matter what the rest of these people will do. True. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very simple. In fact, um, off the cuff here, it is uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Um, he said, I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious. I will not be angry forever. Only, here's the, here's the requirement. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. You've done all these things with strangers under every green tree, and you've not obeyed my voice. Return and acknowledge the sin. Yeah, very good. Thank you for that. Uh, both of those, all those good comments. Anything else? Okay, chapter 5. Now, Jeremiah goes on a, uh, goes on a, a hunt. And it's much like a, a seeking that has been done before. See if you can think what that is before we uh, reveal it. Roam to and throw through the streets of Jerusalem, and look now, and take note, and seek in her open squares. Go, anywhere you find people, go look there, and see if you can find a man. What kind of man? If there's one, we're looking for one man. What kind of man? If there's one who does justice, and who seeks truth. Now, why does Jeremiah need to do this? Because the Lord says... If that's what we find, 
I will pardon. And so this is built into his words. His words of destruction are, are equipped as well with these words of a, a pardon. We're looking for a man who does justice, a man who seeks truth. That's chapter 4, verse 2. Someone who will uh, acknowledge the Lord in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Okay, those three things again. This is what the Lord wants from the people. When you think about the days of Abraham... Is there any parallel to what we are reading right here? And if so, what is it? Ah, oh, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham asks. Yes, he will. But what is right is destroying people who have turned in the utmost sin against him. Okay? And yet, he said... For the sake of 50 righteous people, he would turn, even as few as 10. Here, he says, see if you can find a man. I'm even, I'm only looking for one. There was one in Sodom. And here, maybe not, evidently not. By the way, um, we'll get a, a foretaste of what we're going to see later on. In chapter 23, verse 14, it's going to cement this, uh, a correlation or a comparison with Sodom, because he's going to say, the Lord is going to say about his own people, all of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. What does that tell you? If God looks at them and says, this is as bad as or worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. What does it say? Not a rhetorical question. <laughs> Beyond hope of saving, right? Yeah. No one has turned back from his wickedness. I omitted that from chapter 23. And so that's what you're going to uh, see. And so he can't find a man, evidently. By the way, also in chapter 15. See, we can, we can spend all our time here because we're, just, uh, we're already seeding everything we need to say later, and we'll just have to uh, revisit it. But chapter 15, verse 1, God will go on, go on to say that they're basically beyond reach, and that even if Moses or Samuel had been among their midst, he's not willing to hear them favorably, relent, so yes, what was said before, are they, they're, they're basically beyond saving. This is basically the final warning, last warning. Are you going to, well, he can't find this one. Verse 2, and although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. What does God really want? Truth, justice, righteousness. So in verse 3, Oh, Lord, do not thine eyes look for truth. And, but, but this was not found. He tried to correct them, tried to bring them around, but this was unsuccessful. Well, he looks for a man. Maybe he's just looking in the wrong places. He's gone out in the open squares. All the common people. And this, this is, I know this is a bit of a, a figure that he, he, I don't know that he was doing this uh, literally, but he had already gotten a sense of the shape 
of the hearts of the people. He's like, yeah, you're right, God. I know about them, but maybe, maybe he's just looking in the wrong place. So in verses 4 and 5, Jeremiah's reasoning or just hopeful, wishful thinking, maybe it's just that I've, I've, I looked in the wrong circles. Then I said, surely they are only the poor. The poor are the foolish ones. They don't know the way of the Lord or the ordinance of God. Surely if I go to the respectable or religious or the rich... Okay, what would he find among them? That, that they will be the ones among whom I can find somebody who does truth and who does just or seeks truth and, and who does justice and who is righteous. Verse five, I will go to the great. He says in, in a sort of a hopeful uh, thought, and I will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. But they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and have burst the bonds. They've broken and burst away from any, um, well, any kind of correction. Chapter two, verse eight. What was it? The priests, the lawyers, the rulers, the prophets. They were godless. They were corrupt. Chapter six, verse fourteen. All of them, from the least to the greatest. Greedy, false, and unashamed. And so, true enough. He goes looking for even, almost even one. Somebody pointed out to me last week that Daniel was probably one. <laughs> Daniel was probably alive and maybe one of those ones that was affected by the message of Jeremiah or the reforms of Josiah. Maybe that. The question in verse 5 is, when you see people like this, God is going to ask, shall I not avenge myself and punish people like this? They refuse correction. They're trying to throw off my um, bonds and my, and my yokes and anything that has to do with my ways. Well, that's, we need, we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's verse 9. Let's do a couple more things before that. He asks in verse 7, should I pardon you? Well, it's, it's pretty plain that they're not seeking it and they won't receive it. In verse 8, there, it gets another one of these pictures that will stick with us a little bit uh, throughout the, the following chapters. He says, he describes them um, as Peter would describe God's people. They can be like pigs, like dogs. It's like, that's, it's not a pretty picture, and neither is it here when he describes them as horses. He says, well-fed horses, horses that have had way too much. They'd been blessed richly by God, but they had just turned to this self-indulgent lifestyle. Well-fed, lusty horses, the, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. So not content, they had their own field. They're running away from that, and they're after their neighbor's wife. Um, it's going to be uh, chapter, chapter 5 and 6. He'll say, oh, yeah, well, the fields that they didn't appreciate and that they had fed well from, but they left. He says, I'm giving their fields to others. I'm giving their, their fields to new owners and their wives um, to others. And so um, this will be one of the many times where we see the something-something punishment Something, crime, you know the phrase. In verse 6, <clears throat> there are predators 
after the prey. Think about these. So you have, he says, a lion of the forest will slay them. A wolf of the deserts shall destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out will be torn in pieces, and it's because of their transgressions. So uh, let's, let's see if we can do this. If a lion is a symbol of, I can tell you, or maybe you can tell me. Say it out loud. What is a lion maybe a symbol of? He's an apex predator. Power, strength, right? Yeah. So if that's the case, then what would the, uh, the wolf be? You can say it. No wrong answers here. Second class. Se- well, second class predator. He's certainly going to clean up what's left, maybe clean up what's left over. What did you say? Oh, deceptive. So good hunters, they hunt in packs and they, they're good at what they do. Think about their appetite. You're going to satisfy a wolf. Think about their pursuit. Are you going to outrun one? They can run 40 miles an hour all day long. Okay, and then what about this? Um, we're, we're, maybe we're touching on the leopard there. What does a leopard have in its favor? Strength, speed, both of those, surely. Oh, stalking. So, so certainly going to find you, outrun you, stalk you down, or find you. And so um, they're, they're not going to escape. That's plain. And in verse 17, so let's jump ahead to there for just a moment. Four times it says, you're going to be devoured. And so we're playing off of this picture. They will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. Come back to verse 9. Well-fed, lusty horses, absolutely headstrong people. Shall I not, shall I not... Punish these people, declares the Lord. And on a nation such as this, this shall I not avenge myself? God says, call a jury. What should God do with these people? Even you could judge. You be the judge. Based on what you know about these people so far, and what you know about me, God, what should I be doing in this case, is what he's asking. He asked this twice in, in chapter 5. Here in verse 9, and then again in verse 29. What should he do? God is just, so he must punish and avenge, he says. And God is no respecter of persons. That's the other thing this teaches us. Um, He says, a nation such as this. Have there ever been nations such as this before that God judged? Oh, yeah. And they're just another one in the long line. He drove them out. And um, as Deuteronomy 8 verse 20 says... He'll do the same to them. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Yes, so the question is, should I punish these people? Plain, plain answer. They have selective hearing, which is what you see in verses 12 and 13. They have no ears for uh, words of warning, but they love false words. They've lied about the Lord and said, not he, misfortune will not come upon us. Don't tell us that that's what he's saying. And we're not going to see sword or famine. The prophets are as wind, just blowing smoke. The word is not in them, and thus it will be done to them. So they, and we'll see more and more that they love the false words. 
And so, if he's going to punish them, um, it will come about. Verse 18, he says, Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a complete destruction. So there's the mercy and the remnant being spoken of. And then verse 19, what we'll see is, this is a very appropriate response. God's, God's response of wrath and punishment. See if you see that in this. It shall come about when they say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Okay. Well, you weren't listening, but just, let's just address the question. Why has the Lord done all these things? Then you shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, well, so in the same way you shall serve strangers in a land that is not yours. And so they loved many foreign gods. Well, then they'd be sent to a foreign land to serve them. I have to read Jeremiah chapter 4. This is verse... Uh, 25 through 30. When you become father of children and you have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him, I call heaven and earth to witness against you that you shall surely perish from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on the land. You shall be utterly destroyed. The Lord your God will scatter you among the peoples. You're going to a foreign land, he says. And you shall be left few in number among the nations where the Lord your God shall drive you out. And there you shall serve gods. The work of man's hands, wood, stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. So many foreign gods, they loved them. And so he's sending them to a foreign land, just like he said he would, back, all the way back in, through Moses. And then he says in verse 30, when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God, and you will listen to his voice. That's what it's going to take to get these ones to listen. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenants with your fathers, which he swore to him. So the character of God is true to his covenant. Very appropriate response, wouldn't you say? Punishment fits the crime. In verse 21, it's the perennial problem. Why are they in this state? Well, eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear. Was it any different in the time of Isaiah? Isaiah 6, that's, the, that's where the famous quote, when you read it in the time of Jesus. Is it different in the time of Jesus? Eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, ears in chapter 6 that cannot hear, cannot hear, not if they not attached to hearts that will listen. Is it any different in our day? In these last days, when God has spoken, eyes that don't see, ears, ears that don't hear. Verse 23 and 24, um, as we try to put an end to chapter 5, reveals hearts, hearts that are stubborn, hearts that are rebellious, hearts that are wayward. They're, they are not interested in God's ways, and they're going off. And hearts that are fearless. They should have feared and had a healthy fear of the Lord. And so in verse 29, um, those, well, verse 28, see, I should have said this when we talked about the horses. Here it is in verse, uh, verse 28. They're fat, they're sleek, and they excel in deeds of wickedness. Shall I not? He asks the second time. And... So, we'll, we'll wrap up chapter 5 by asking this. How did they get in this position? And we've a answered this to, definitely to a certain extent. 
Maybe it's, um, it's certainly due to their lack of love for God. They were a bride that didn't even, they'd forgotten her husband. Um, there was a lack of leadership in chapter 2, verse 8. Um, all of the ones who should have known the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, the ones who, the, or chapter 3, the ones who should have known the Lord uh, did not. And didn't the, the priests that should have preserved knowledge and instructed the people. There was a lack of listening. I don't think we need to address that any more than we have. But um, I'm reading as, uh, because I can't help it. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9. For this is a rebellious people. False sons who refuse to listen to the who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, "Now we're getting ahead of ourselves. We have to read how they got into this position in chapter five. An appalling verse thirty. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it?" They have a love of pleasant words. They don't want to hear the words of warning. They want to hear, as in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10, really the, the message that they prescribe. You are the ones who say to the seers, don't see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Tell us there will be peace. That's chapter 6. Tell us God's favor won't leave the temple and the people who live around the temple. That's chapter 7. Tell us anything but truth. (laughs) Well, when you get to that position, well, you see how they've gotten to this place. I think it's pretty, pretty plain. And then... What you find is, if this is, if this is all the people have a, an appetite for, then there's no more way to correct their course. There's no checks and balances, nobody to say, listen to the right ways, won't you turn back? No more way to avert disaster. Okay, say anything you like to about chapter 5. Yes. If I can like briefly add to your list here, I'm trying to think of an, an L word. Yeah, you got to stay I, with that. I, I can't. I can't think of an L word. So, chapter five, verse twenty-four. Mm-hmm. Like they they do not say in their heart, "Let us now fear the Lord mm-hmm. our God who gives." Like they've forgotten the ability to be thankful. It reminds me of you know, Romans chapter one at the beginning of when Paul talks about the depravity of man. He starts with not acknowledging God or giving thanks. Giving thanks. So not acknowledging where their blessings uh, come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had forgotten their history, all of his goodness, chapter 2, to them in the wilderness. He is a God who's good to his people. It's a, uh, it's a depressing thought to think about how there was not one person that could be found. And there's some similar language in Ezekiel, chapter 22, where he goes through and he's searching for that one man. Mm. But the flip side of that, and maybe a little bit of an encouragement for us, is that sometimes God is just looking for that one. And so when we feel like maybe... We are not making a difference in our families, in our workplace, in our community, because we're just one. Here is prime proof evidence that sometimes God is just looking for one person to make a difference. And maybe we can be that difference. Yeah, that is certainly the lesson for us. We need to be the one who stands in the gap against, um, against what the Lord would, would justly do. There's someone, yeah. Just to go back to verse 19. 
Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? How many thousands or even millions of people say that today? <laughs> Something bad happens. Mm -hmm. why, why did you do this, God? I'm why did sure. you let this happen to me? Why? Mm -hmm. God knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, our, our job is to stay faithful mm -hmm. and, and do what he would have us to do as best as we can. They didn't ask where's the Lord who was good to us and who did, as Bill said, like all of the good things the Lord might do, well, those are overlooked, aren't they? Um, but, oh, sure, yes, at a time of trouble, that may be the only thing that causes them to seek him. Well, we, won't, we certainly won't get all the way through chapter 6, so we'll introduce this because we're drawing on the imagery of the woman. We've built this already. All of these things are the, the imagery that God has started to paint all the way back to chapter Chapter 2. Um, listen to the words of Proverbs 31 as we go into this. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Does this apply to them? It's true of individuals. Is it true of God's intended bride? Chapter 4, verse 30 says, Although you dress in scarlet, although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, see, very beautiful, in vain you make yourself beautiful. Your lovers despise you. He will say, you're beautiful, but you are vulnerable. Flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow a trumpet, for evil looks down from the north. Verse 2 the lovely, the comely, and dainty one, the daughter of Zion, I will cut off. So she's vulnerable. And what we're going to see a great deal throughout the rest of chapter 6 is the destroyer. And by con there's a big contrast being played upon here. They are the ones in verses 4 and 5 and then later are the battle-hardened destroyer. They grab their weapons, verse 23. They're cruel and merciless. They roar. They're well-equipped, well-trained warriors, and they're descending on Judah, this helpless daughter. And then back here in chapter 4 and 5, they're this way, and they don't even get tired. He says, we're going to attack at noon, and then woe to us because it's getting dark outside. We could have gone for several hours more. We could go all the way through the night because if we could only see, he's mocking them. Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom will say, I will mock when their dread comes. And these ones are mocking in the day of their dread. Well, kind of hard to read and kind of hard to break off there, but we will do it. And thank you very much for kind attention and also the very, very, very helpful comments.